you're listening to where we are on this week's episode we're going to talk about ranked choice voting what is it who just got elected through a, uh, an election decided by ranked choice voting we'll also talk about president joe biden's speech delivered on the set of tlc's music video for red light special <laughs> this is where we are This is Where We Are, hosted by the That Sounds Fun Network. We are the Wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And Melissa. So good to, good to be back with you. Good to be back with you. We're back to talk, make some jokes. Yeah, apparently. I was not prepared for that joke, everybody. We're going to enjoy each other's company. You uh, are... Heading on a plane tomorrow. Yes, with both of our daughters. With both of our daughters. Two children under four. Please pray for me, even though you will not listen to this until Sunday. Southwest. It's a Southwest flight, right? That's right. So, uh, you know, Godspeed. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm frightened, to be honest with you. It's my very first flight with both of them by myself, so... It's so, like, Alaria's at that age where... Um, she cannot be contained. She can't be contained. She doesn't stop moving. She, her bones are still like loose, and so <laughs> she finds ways to like shape shift out of your grasp. She's, it's really she's incredible. Like a cat. It's like it's she impressive. Fits through small fa- spaces. Yeah, it's a whole thing. But I'm um, terrified. But yeah, so you're gonna be in Alabama visiting family. You're gonna be in Atlanta. Uh, we'll meet up at some point, uh, but. But you, you you have quite a weekend ahead of you. And we have quite an episode ahead of us. Melissa, what do you want to cover first? Let's talk about ranked choice voting. So on Tuesday, there was a special election held for an at-large U.S. House seat. Um, uh, Representative Don Young died earlier this year, and so the seat has been vacant. And so they needed to vote for someone to fill that seat until a November general election, um, and then that person will go and get into office in January. But at least for the next, you know, what, three months, um, they need somebody sitting in the office. And so Democrat Mary Patola was declared the winner um, through ranked choice voting over a couple of other candidates, one of whom you really may know, which is um, former Governor Sarah Palin, and then also Nick um, Begich. Begich. Yep. Begich. the third. both Sarah and Nick. Um, are uh, Republicans, so it was two Republicans, one Democrat, and Mary came through. She's going to be the first woman to hold that House seat in Alaska, and she's going to be the first Alaska Native voted into Congress, obviously, for just a short time in, in the short term, but we'll have to see there. So, Michael, I asked a question on Instagram um, because your Morning 5 this week covered this election. So I asked your followers at Michael Ware on Instagram, uh, are you in favor of ranked choice? Are you not in favor of ranked choice? Are you not sure? Or do you not even know what ranked choice voting is? And 22% of your followers said that they didn't even know what ranked choice voting is. So we decided let's cover it um, for those of you who don't know what it is. So Michael, what is ranked choice voting? Yeah, well, so it's a a way of conducting elections where voters have the option to rank their uh, preferences in terms of candidates. So instead of just voting for one candidate, you have the option of uh, saying, uh, this is the candidate I prefer sort of second most and third most and down the line. Now, if Uh, A candidate receives 50% of the vote when votes are counted, then ranked choice voting doesn't mean really, really anything. It doesn't come into into play. But if uh, no one gets 50%, then the candidate that receives the least amount of votes is uh, is, uh, dropped out. And uh, that candidate's second preferences... uh, those votes get allocated to that candidate's uh, voters, their second preferences. So I think the easiest way to sort of explain this is to actually talk about the way it actually played out. Okay. Uh, played out in in Alaska. So we had essentially 
uh, there were other candidates, but really three main three main uh, candidates in this election in Alaska for their only congressional seat. So Alaska has an at-large a seat for the U.S. House of Representatives due to population. So this is their only House election, uh, or, or this is the election for their only House seat. As you said, Melissa, the three top vote-getters were Sarah Palin, um, uh, Mary Peltola, and Nick Begich. Now, none of the candidates got above 50%. Uh, Mary Peltola got 36.8%. Sarah Palin got 30.2%. Nick Begich got 26.19%. Now, importantly, that means two of the three top vote-getters were Republican, uh, Begich and Palin. If you add up their vote totals, it's over uh, over 50%. But since none of the candidates uh, got over 50%, ranked choice voting kicked in. And so uh, election officials go, go uh, f- start from the least vote getter, then allocate uh, that candidate's voters' second preference. Those votes move to the second preference. And then the process keeps on going until... Uh, like until one candidate gets over 50%. Okay. Now, uh, right, this can play out in all kinds of interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So imagine, yeah. you know, imagine a hypothetical where you have, you know, in this race, you really had three candidates that were the chief vote getters. Right. But let's say you had a race where you had five or six mm-hmm. uh, candidates that got around 10, 15%. You know, you could see. Almost like imagine a horse race, yeah. and you know if if uh, the if the candidate that performed uh, uh, worse out of those six, if all of their voters move to you know the third place candidate, uh, that third place candidate might right. move up to yes. move up to first. But it, with Alaska, we just had primarily three candidates getting the votes, although they were pretty closely bunched together. Nick Begich, after uh, after sort of all the rounds preceding, uh, was still the third vote getter. And then get 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 this get, get what happened. So half of Nick uh, Begich's voters went to the other Republican in the race. Uh, they went to they went to Sarah Palin. Right. Uh, now that's not. Uh, that good, <laughs> right? So no, uh, only if only half of the other Republicans' votes went to the leading Republican, that means the other half of the votes uh, uh, didn't go <laughs> to, to to Sarah Palin. So uh, let me just insert a question here. So might this system allow um, potentially this idea that some people do vote on like the person on do they like the person yes. versus like voting on like oh i have to support that position or even the ideology yeah 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 and right? we'll, we'll we'll get to that but but uh but yes the answer to your question is yes so what happened with begich's votes is again half who of of the voters who made begich their first choice ranked palin second and so those votes went to palin mm mm-hmm. mhm 21% of Begich's voters did not make a second choice. Got it. So you can leave that blank. Yeah, you can leave it blank. Okay. You don't have to, and you don't have to rank all the candidates. So you don't okay. have to like make up, you know, it's just the yeah. candidates that you want to have, you know, you want to huh. rank your, your votes to. But get this, the remaining 29% ranked Peltola, the Democrat second. And that 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 twenty nine percent was critical, really deciding, uh, decisive for Peltola to be able to hold off Palin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, Peltola won with uh, sh- she was ahead of Palin in terms of first choice by sixteen thousand votes. She ended up winning the election after votes were allocated by about fifty two hundred votes. Okay. Now. Right, so uh, there's been a lot of like talk since the election. Uh, y- you know, uh, re- uh, Republicans have been saying ranked choice voting is sort of rigged against us. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, 
what it's what here here's what ranked choice voting is is rigged against. If you um, win, if you are if your um, support is concentrated, but uh, among a, a significant but not a majority of voters, mm-hmm. and the way that you um, but you're repulsive to too many others. So, yes. you know, for instance, if you're a candidate who builds up support by antagonizing others in the electorate, by saying, I, 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 you know, I stick with these voters, but almost sort of in opposition to all these other voters, well, you may have a problem. So, for instance, in this race... Sarah Palin refused to call on her voters to rank Nick Begich uh, okay. as they voted. And okay. so if you're not willing to do that, you know, because she was running a camp, you know, I'm the real conservative. I, I have the support of Donald Trump. Nick Begich is a is a rhino. You know, he's a he's a he's he's too moderate, etc. So she didn't want to say, you know, uh, Nick Begich is a good second option. Well, if you're a voter who actually thinks Nick Begich uh, is your first choice, when you're going to rank your second choice, it, you you might not go to rank the person who, uh, it, you know, very intentionally would not said I don't want your vote. yeah exactly yeah. Uh, well, right. So she didn't say I don't want your vote. Well, what no, she said but- is I don't want my voters to uh, like you, you know she she wouldn't. Um, she, she, she. I mean, a simple way to say it is she wasn't a team player. Well, I mean, that's. I know that she didn't say I don't want your vote, but that's what she's. That's yes, how I would. Sure. That's how I communicated yes, yes, as yes. a voter. Is yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, you you could certainly see this kind of dynamic emerging. Uh, you know, if if instead of Sarah Palin, it was, uh, I, I don't know, AOC mm-hmm. or yeah, uh, or a, a more um, you know, a, a Democrat who has a very strong progressive following, right. but, but uh, independents don't really like them, then the same dynamic would work sort of in that space or, or, or could work, yeah. could be plausible. And this Unless is that the, progressive does a better job in saying, this is who no, I well, am yeah, in Well, no, I, right just, I, just, yeah. I, I just mean, rate choice voting isn't... Um, biased against conservatives right. or, pro- yes. or progressives yes, yes, yes. It, the, the, the the dynamic it's biased against is if um, you're a candidate who has a hard time appealing to over 50 percent of the electorate and so look so uh, for the reason why you're hearing more about ranked choice voting yeah uh, is because it seems like a a structural way to get at the problem of a small, relatively small, unrepresentative, but highly engaged portion of the electorate sort of being able to dictate the choices that the rest of voters have. This is, uh, uh, this is sort of increasingly, I think, an, an, ob- an observable and appreciated problem. How many of you listening have said, you know, I have looked at uh, who Democrats have on the ballot, who Republicans have on the ballot, and said, like, neither. <laughs> or, you know, not, neither of these candidates seem close enough to what I would like. Well, what ranked choice voting allows you to do is to reward various candidates and rank various candidates uh, in a way that's more personal, more reflective of your your actual preferences. If you're a moderate Republican, you can put Nick Begich first uh, and say Sarah Palin is too too far to the right for me and you know it needs to be said you know the democrat ran a race you know it's not just that 
uh, Sarah Palin didn't do enough to reach out to Nick Begich's voters. It was yes. the Democrat in this race yes. ran a very like, you know, she ran as an Alaska native. She ran, she wasn't a vitriolic it was a candidate. Positive campaign. It was a positive campaign. She made herself, um, I, I mean, one of her three leading issues was a protecting Alaskan fish. I mean, mm-hmm. this is yeah. the kind of this is the kind of campaign she was running. And so, what it meant was, you know, uh, uh, enough of Nick Begich's voters looked to their right and saw a candidate that they found to be uh, repulsive or, or not worthy of of their vote, and they looked to the Democratic side to their left and said, "Well, I would prefer Nick Begich in office, but if Nick Begich is out, I'd prefer." Twenty nine percent said. I prefer uh, the Democrat over someone way far to my right in my own party. And so, I mean, just there, that's a great example of, you know, to the extent we talk about tribalism or, or polarization, party polarization being a being a, a problem, ranked choice voting gives voters a way to, to break that and to express it themselves. So all that to say, Melissa, I'm a fan of ranked choice voting. Okay. I'd like to see it tried out. Um, you know, so basically, there are a bunch of municipalities and cities that have ranked choice voting, including some big ones. New York City had mm-hmm. ranked choice voting elections right. this past cycle. Uh, 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 there are a number of major cities with ranked choice voting. The states that have ranked choice voting are Alaska and Maine. And Alaska's system is pretty new, though, right? Oh, yeah, this Even was the Maine, first time. Yes, this, this was yeah, the first this time. was the first time they'd used it. So it's pretty new. I'd like to see it. Uh, I'd like to see more states pick it up, but I'm very interested in ranked choice voting becomes becoming something that's available on, on a national national scale at some point. Yeah, I, for me, I'm working this out honestly in real time with you all listening uh, for the first time because I, I generally knew what it was, but I hadn't really sat down and thought about what are the benefits of the system, what are the drawbacks, do I think it's a good idea, and. So far, and it's funny because we're going to talk about President Biden's speech on democracy next. Um, but one of the first things that came to mind uh, was, I mean, there's there's a billion difference, definitions of democracy, and there's different kinds of democracy. But it made me think of representative democracy, one of the democracies that you know the United States is supposed to have. Um, this felt like a better playing out of that type of system representative democracy, the sort of by the people, for the people, if you've got an election that can better reflect the nuances of people's policy and political preferences, it especially, and I note this like in like bold, especially in a two-party system, it seems to me, um, where now when you do have candidates, like again, just because we're talking about this specific one, you've got Begich and you've got Palin both on the G- both in the GOP, but both running on different platforms and running one running a bit more to like the center, one running more to the right. It feels like a um, a way to better play those types of candidates out when you only have so many parties in a system. Um, it's very interesting to me. And also, just to mention something really quickly. Um, to just the the point you were just making on people's choices uh, and being able to sort of list out imperfect choices and feeling potentially better about it. We hear this all the time, you and I, Michael, especially, especially with Christians who are trying to discern their vote. Um, We hear all the time people talking about violating their conscience, especially in voting, um, that this type of system might help people feel like they're doing that a lot less which would be a great thing in terms of like the health of our politics just by like the sort of just like the psychology behind it when people are voting if you're feeling like you're doing that a lot less than you with the with the outcomes you might get people collectively starting to feel like you know what my first choice wasn't chosen but my second choice was i was at least able to you know i picked i picked between you know three four however many are in the election imperfect candidates and this is how it played out. Instead of it, it feels a lot less embattled. Yeah, the well, style of well, voting. And I, in just a regular election, you're picking just your first choice. Yes. But the way that that is processed, I think psychologically for a lot of folks, is like my vote is 
an is, expression is of everything the, I believe in. An expression of everything I believe in. Uh, Ranked choice voting just kind of uh, puts the emphasis on the fact that, no, th- these are just among the options that are available to you. Yes. Uh, how would you rank them? That that seems to me like just a much healthier... It creates a bit of separation between one's personal identity and and one's... Uh, and, and how one mm-hmm. how one uh, thinks about voting, which we could we could use. Uh, so uh, I'm excited to see this experiment continue to unfold. I think for the um, for the benefit of ranked choice voting, I think it would be uh, helpful if there were some clear examples of Republicans benefiting and by yes. winning an election. Sure, um, absolutely. Al- although you know. You even look at this race, and the, the the Democrat was winning by more in the first round. So actually, ranked choice voting, even in this election, it didn't help Sarah Palin enough. Mm-hmm. But she, That's right. she, she, she came closer to winning than she would have been if it had just been uh, if it had just been a fir- first round of voting, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, she closed the gap. Something like eleven thousand, eleven thousand uh, votes. She closed it. She was down sixteen thousand votes after the first round, and ended up coming within about five thousand votes. Uh, but I do think, just for sort of the narrative, it, it, like um, uh, it'll be helpful for ranked choice voting to pick up some steam if if we see Republicans uh, able to win some races as as a result of how ranked choice voting. Uh, processes. Uh, right. Yeah. And this election itself could have looked very different if um, Mary Patola, who's a Democrat, also had another gem- Democrat who had won previously in the primary and they had those four candidates, I I think, in terms of just like in terms of splitting of votes, in terms of first and second choice, possibly. Maybe. That's a guess. Right. Like if there was, yeah, if, if, if there was another major Democratic vote getter. Yes, yeah, the, in the exactly. Race. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm talking about, where no, that's right. it seems like Sarah and Nick, I mean, Nick, he, he did get in the first round, you know, uh, 53,000 votes. Like, that's a, that's a significant amount. So he was a significant candidate yeah. with Sarah Palin. So he had two Republicans, one Democrat. And so it seems like in this instance, it, you know, it's just the way the cookie crumbled, yeah. as Bruce Almighty would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but the cookie cr- crumbled that way because Nick Begich's voters right so if not to belabor the point but if it was just a regular vote Nick Begich's 53,000 voters would have been would have not been heard yep, or right. I don't want to say that you're 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 heard yes. if your candidate loses but um their their voice would have would have stopped there mm-hmm. but because of ranked choice voting those 53,000 votes ended up uh uh, their their second preferences actually decided the election. I think that's like a and super again help- psychologically. I think that's a super that's healthy, a really thing. healthy sounding thing to me. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's. I'm interested to see. Uh, you know, I think the New York how ranked choice voting uh, happened in New York. I think that uh, turned out to be pretty well. The big criticism of ranked choice voting is that it delays the results. Mm. And so there. Wow, the, we have to wait more than three seconds for a result. Well, I mean, there, there, there is, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, so sorry, there, I don't mean to be flippant, but yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, there, there, there's, uh, there's, there's just concern about, yeah, what, it, whether it will uh, harm confidence. In the democratic fo- right. process yes. and yes. voting, if people don't have the immediate sort of, uh, you know, seeing, you know, they vote and that day right. it's done and dusted. It's done and dusted. Yep. They see what their vote did, and instead, this sort of puts the, you know, puts additional burden on our election systems to to handle the ranked choice voting and all the allocations and so so that's like a criticism like it's a much more burdensome sort of process sort of process okay but i think that uh, that means that we need systems that can handle it and i think the the benefit to uh to 
democracy and representation uh, outweigh some of the cons. But that's why we want to see this be taken up at the state level and local level before nationalizing it so that we can work out some of the kinks. But okay, let's uh, let's take a break. When we get back, we'll talk about uh, President Biden's speech in Philadelphia. This is where we are. I had to do it. I had to do it. Michael. <laughs> I cannot believe it. <laughs> uh, on Thursday, uh, President Biden delivered a speech in Philadelphia that the White House billed as an update for the country on uh, the battle for the soul of America. The speech had a truly bizarre red background. Now, it, it, there have been f uh, photographs, and I don't want to spend too much time, but look, it was weird enough to comment on. I mean, uh, you, walked, it, it, you, you walked in in the middle of the speech, and you were like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't believe it. I don't believe in the hyper-focus on this, but yes, no, I've, you know, I have viewed many a speech, many a historical speech, and I was like, what yep. is that? So, uh, so... So yeah, so he, he gave this this speech in in Philadelphia. Uh, it was look, I, I've, I think there's a lot going on here. There's so much, so much going on here. You know, in some ways, Biden aimed big with the setting outside Independence Hall. You know, the speech opens up with references to. The fact that, you know, he's speaking in front of the place where, uh, where quote, uh, this is where the United States Constitution was written and debated. This is where America made its declaration of independence to the world. This is where we set in motion the most extraordinary experiment of self-government the world has ever known with three simple words, we the people. Uh, uh, he uh, then moved into... His, his main point, uh, and he said, as I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. Uh, so tonight I have come to this place where it all began to speak as plainly as I can to the nation about the threats we face, about the power we have in our hands, in our own hands to meet these threats, and about the incredible future that lies in front of us, if only we choose it. Uh, very early on in the speech, Biden names Donald Trump, which is something that he's he's uh, he's made a point not he's to made do. a point to avoid uh, to to not do. Uh, and then you know I think a really key element of this speech that I think was a little muddled to be uh, to be honest, uh, but honestly that that might have been part of the point. But he introduced on a significant stage uh, this idea of MAGA Republicans. Uh, MAGA, of course, stands for Make America Great Again. So, you know, these are uh, MAGA Republicans. And President Biden said they, uh, quote, represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Went on to say, I want to be very clear not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. And then he continued, but there is no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. So right, that, that's quite a distinction. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. But then just a couple of lines later, he says, there's no question the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated yep. by Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans. So 
I guess the, the you put those two together and he's saying a mi- minority within the Republican Party is dominating and intimidating the, the rest of the Republican Party, which, you know, in some way it seems totally uh, plausible, seems to reflect uh, 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 much of much of what we've we've seen. Uh, and then he goes on to say, and th- this was a weird, weird part. And then Melissa, I'll, I'll I'll turn it to you. I have some observations, but he said, you know, I'm an American president, not the president of Red America or Blue America, but of all America. And I believe it is my duty, my duty to level with you, to tell you the truth, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And so he went on to uh, describe MAGA Republicans. He said they don't respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. Uh, They look, quote, they look at the mob that stormed the United States Capitol on January 6th, uh, and they view them not as insurrectionists, but they look at them as patriots. Uh, He said they see their, their failure to stop a peaceful transfer of power in 2020 as just preparation for the 2022 and 2024 elections. Uh, I mean, significant charges. A a few things, Melissa. Yeah. One, it's not clear. So I, I think much of the... I do think that there are, I, I think Donald Donald Trump and those closely associated with him, their actions on January 6th constitute a threat to the republic. And that's what we've heard, not just from, mm-hmm. a, a threat to democracy. And that's what we've heard, not just from, uh, that's not from just sort of pundits or Democrats. Uh, that seems to have been the impression of folks very close to Donald Trump mm-hmm. on January 6th. We don't need to sort of belabor that point, but I, I, I do think that there are um, uh, some of the charges that Biden lays out uh, are correct insofar as they're aimed uh, at, at those who at those who acted and at those who sort of fully endorse and knowingly endorse everything. A couple of problems I have. One, it's not clear to me that there's not enough clarity in the speech uh, who he's talking about and when. Yes. So he says, so it's supposed to be about MAGA Republicans. So are these elected officials or um, is it the folks who were there, like actually there on January 6th? Is it Donald Trump supporters? Yep. Uh, Like that's a huge difference. If you're president of the United States sort of uh, sort of laying out these these charges, uh, you, you need to be you need to be clear about who you're talking about. And I, I think I think that, that, that there's a real question Especially if you're calling a specific subset of a party yes. a threat to the entire underpinning of yes. the country. Yes. Be very specific. Um, so, so I, I, and then, you know, some of the language is, I think, a, a factual... You know, a reasonable, a reasonable historical accounting of what happened. But then there's other language that did make me uncomfortable. He said, "Maga Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies." It's like, is that out of a Marvel? trailer like, like it's it's yeah. just like whoa it, <laughs> um yeah you, you I, know like like i don't i don't think that that's and again because he's not because he's not clear about exactly who he's talking about is he talking about donald trump mm-hmm. or is he talking about 
they live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies is this, quite a line. <laughs> yeah, this whole speech, it felt like... Because, uh, you know, multiple speechwriters, usually, we don't know how this speech was constructed and exactly by whom, but usually there's at least a couple, a few speechwriters and the president himself. And it felt like you had different sections written by different people. It felt like this speech overall was two different speeches. The very first was the sweeping trying to unify people around an idea and a sort of call. And then the second part of the speech was like a campaign stump speech because he gets into what he's achieved as president. Or it felt like maybe if we're giving a little bit more generous, more like a so-to, a State of the Union address. But then it's lines like this that are interspersed throughout that are very like trying to, I feel like, go towards like a higher rhetoric or a more poetic rhetoric that just feels really disjointed because it feels like, oh, this has been pieced together by different contributors, <laughs> which you never want it to feel that way, especially if you think that this subject matter is as important as it is. Yeah, and, and um, others have commented on, on, on this. I think two, two other things I want to say. One, you know, there's that posturing up at the top of the speech about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the president of America, not of blue America, red America. It, it sort of suggests that you're going to have something critical to say about people in your own party or of yourself, like that there's going to be some sort of like ref- reflection. I could have done this better. You know, here's what, here's the, here's the, here's the olive branch I want to extend. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very different speech. Barack Obama gave a speech in very different circumstances, but in the same city uh, in uh, in 2008 during yeah. the during the presidential camp or during the presidential campaign in 2008, and that speech was notable for the extent to which Barack Obama went to offer a critique of sort of people who would be politically associated with him, and I was just. I just don't think you can uh, give a speech like this uh, trying to posture as an objective observer and not have literally anything to say about about sort of anything critical to say about your own side. The the last point I want to make is, uh, and others have made this point, the way he goes back and forth between a functioning democracy as in like the peaceful transfer of power and his specific political agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so earlier, you know, he, he made, he makes that line about, you know, they, uh, they live not in the light, but the shadow of uh, mm-hmm. the whatever, you, you know, but then later in the speech, he talks about after, after recounting his agenda, bringing back uh, American manufacturing, addressing guns, uh, addressing COVID, he says, we can see the light. Light is now visible. Light that will guide us forward, not only in words, but in actions. Um, it, it's, it's conflating quite a bit. And, and if, if you're going to go to Philadelphia and give a speech about the sort of saying our democracy, like the basic functioning of our system of, of government is under attack, and you're going to say you're doing it as a as a president, not as a, not as the leader of a political party. Then I think you got to be really careful about implying. And frankly, he does much more than imply um, that your specific political agenda is somehow wound up in democracy working in the correct way. Yeah, basically, it's, it's a your real political, problem. It, it makes me want to bring up a point that I felt throughout the entire speech, but I wasn't really able to define it until I read through the transcript again and sat down and thought for a few minutes. And I haven't watched any of the punditry or really read much about people's reactions towards this speech. But for me, I'm imagining that the partisanship that comes out in this speech is especially driven by the second half because it goes into his agenda 
and the sort of um, his political agenda being as sort of one of the bombs for for what ails us. And, you know, that's I mean, presidents do that all the time. Like but in terms of the fact that January 6th did change everything and it happened just before the inauguration. So, you know, Biden hasn't really been given the chance to speak at it yet. You know, voting rights stuff and uh, all these votes to, um, you know, quote unquote, undermine elections have been coming out. So I can see why there was a reason for this speech to come, besides the fact that the midterms are in a couple months. Democrats feel like like they're on a forward footing. But if we're actually talking about the issue at hand, democracy being under threat, you know, it is... It is a bit uncomfortable to say, okay, there's an entire subset of people who are on the far right who perpetrated this insurrection. And so we have to pin it on this group of people and to have a president do it, it it elevates it to an entire other level. And it got me thinking that it's just so hard to make this kind of speech. Again, going back to like a point I was making just in the ranked choice voting, it's hard to do this in a two-party system. Because I immediately started thinking about Europe and how a European country, I mean, name one, how uh, France or Germany would deal with an insurrection on their capital kind of thing. And if it were perpetrated by a far-right party, it would be perpetrated by a far-right party. There are several, usually in all these countries. And there are just usually a whole grouping of parties in each of these countries. There's more than two. There's three, four, five, six, many um, and I'm just saying that when it when it comes to making speeches like this, when you're talking about an entire subset of people, it's just much more difficult to stem all of the um, criticisms for partisanship that this speech can in, uh, sort of people can latch onto as sort of an excuse of like this is an illegitimate speech because he's demonizing this whole subset of people. Whereas like if, if you have it, if you were to make, be making this type of speech because something happened in a multi-party system, it's much easier to say, okay, we're singling out this. Yeah, this, right. You know, it's it's just one side talking about another the side, other side, which makes it, which I, right after his speech ends, you, you know, your entire excuse can be, you know, the president, you know, he he's just shown that he just hates half of America. Like, that, that sure. is sort of what the criticism can yeah. be. It just felt like this speech, um, I agree with the need for it. I agree that the president should be speaking out on this. I do think that democracy is a huge issue in, in the United States. Since the insurrection happened, it, it's a reality, and it needs to be dealt with. Um, it just... The, some of the bones are there, but the execution for me, the wording, the semantics, all of it, which is so deeply important to really get this speech right, to really set that tone. Yeah. It feels not quite there for me. Yeah. So I think my advice for folks would be um, this speech is, no matter what the White House says, this speech is first and foremost a midterm election speech yeah uh and the speech makes much more sense if you view it in that way the only real solution biden offers is to elect democrats and not republicans so it was it was a it was him framing up the stakes in the midterm elections now one thing I'd I'd like to do is so, so sort of we've given our sort of reaction and and I think to summarize at least where I am and maybe you know if you if you differ uh, I I thought the substance of the speech was needed in in the sense that we the country's is facing real significant tests you do have a significant. Uh, percentage of Americans, not just on the right, by the way, but Mm -hmm. you have significant percentage of Americans that um, believe that procedure, the procedures of democracy uh, should be thrown away if they don't result in the outcome that, uh, in the political outcome that people are looking for. That's a that's a real problem. It's really difficult to have trust among, uh, among and between voters and and citizens if 
there's the the explicit sort of sense that uh, the rules of the road will be done away with at the moment it's convenient uh, or at the moment the rules are inconvenient. Uh, and so uh, so I, I think the, the basic aim of the speech, if the basic aim of the speech is to say, look, these challenges we're facing are, are serious. It's not just normal politics. I, I did like the fact that President Biden said so much of what we're seeing, too much of what we're seeing right now is not normal. I think that's exactly right. And you know, Melissa, just having this conversation, I, I think I have a, a clearer view of what, what Biden was doing in the speech. A clearer view, frankly, than I had when I when we started recording. And and like here here here's here's my take. The reason why the speech is, and this goes to your point, the reason why the speech is this weird uh, mishmash of sort of highfalutin rhetoric about our founding and the Constitution. And, you know, he sets the stakes so high. Yeah. And then gets into his agenda is, I think Biden has an analysis of why, um, of why Trump was elected in 2016, of why... There's so much cynicism about uh, government, about why there's so much polarization. And hmm. and it's because he, he thinks um, they've, I mean, I think a number of things. One, I think he thinks that they've lost confidence that the government can play a positive role in their lives. Mm. That government mm -hmm. can actually address things uh, that are uh, harming them and, and make make their lives better. And so for for Biden, I think I think he thinks if we can't show the American people that government can function well and and properly and meet their needs, oh, I'm seeing. Okay, then then it leaves us exposed to. People like Trump who are saying, look, the system's not working for you. Just tear it down. Just reject it. And so I think that's why the speech was the way it was. The problem is, if you're not very clear about that line of logic, and if you don't, if you don't offer a, look, the, my agenda is how I've proposed meeting the challenges mm -hmm. that yep. we have. Our democracy ought to be about a debate about the agenda. Uh, and I welcome, you know, all good faith critiques and alternatives. That's what our democracy is for. That's the playing field we should be on, not the playing field of rejecting election results dun, dun, dun. like if he had that would have been so much better yes like if, <laughs> if he would have been much clearer about the line of logic he's how he gets from uh democracy is in danger to uh you know i, I pass an infrastructure bill <laughs> you know? yeah. um, uh, then it could be it could be healthier but because like the midterm elections were so and we were just in this awful unending cycle of needing to raise the stakes of every election to these absolutely sort of existential uh, crisis that that it, it was like he wasn't willing or wasn't able or they didn't think they could actually spell things out uh, because it would weaken the political force of the argument. But 
I think the, the speech would have been much better if he had offered, like I said at the beginning, a couple of critiques or reflections on Democrats. Just just give 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 uh, Republicans something to sort of sort of hold on to. And, and frankly, what Barack Obama was very good at was naming something that he knew the other co- the other side could see and identify so so you could affirm that hey we're all you know there's some shared sense of reality here mm-hmm. but instead i'm i'm afraid for too many americans because he didn't name any sort of point of like self critique um and because he wasn't he wasn't very clear about how he gets from democracy is under threat to his specific political agenda that yeah it just it just um it may be an effective speech for turning out democrats in the midterms but um beyond that i i i think it missed the mark it misses the mark on being a unity speech which i, I think yes I yes it does. some people sort yes. of trying to call it that like if it's fighting for democracy then it's you know try, Trying to go, trying to be a unity speech, which some would argue is what we need right now in terms of people actually believing that democracy is the best system that we could hope for and that we should fight for it. And uh, the other person isn't your, your neighbor or the person who votes differently than you isn't uh, somebody who lives in the shadow of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know that again, like he's, he try, it's funny. You never really, one uh, the whole thing about like MAGA Republicans trying to name him for the first time, trying to put a categorical box around a, a sort of rhetorical thing, at least in the speech is rhetorical. Um, and then, you know, giving a definition and then immediately giving the caveat of like, I'm not speaking about everyone. Um, was so strange to me in terms of a political speech. It, that doesn't happen a lot. Not giving definitions and then having to put caveats on it. Um, I think that that's also why those lines well, are bothering me. Is that it? It felt um, you don't usually see that. I think it was. It was. They they wanted to put a line in so that they could point to it after to say, look, he wasn't talking about all Republicans. Of course. No, he, yeah, no, exactly. no, but like he said it right there, but they left it opaque enough. that Yes. Which it makes the whole idea of even putting it in the first place when people only have such a, a short attention span and, you know, they might not read past the first few lines or they might get towards, towards the middle and, or you can, or your favorite politician can quote another part of it and you never see that, that it just, it yeah it's, yeah I mean it's what, what I what I what I shared on on Twitter is uh, it seemed really clear to me listening to the speech that one of the the uh, one of the White House's aims with the speech was uh, to uh, make MAGA Republicans a sort of a, a thing that journalists asked Republican candidates on the trail mm-hmm. do you consider yourself to be a MAGA Republican and. You know, that obviously puts these Republican candidates in a bind. If they say yes, they send a message to independent voters uh, and Democrats that, that, uh, that, that they're, they're uh, sort of off limits for their vote. If they say no, then maybe they depress turnout among some of their voters, which is exactly where the Biden White House wants Republicans in the midterm elections, which is sort of in this bind between... Uh, 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 do you, um, which is in this place of not being able to both pursue independence uh, while turning out the base. Now, I think a big reason for this is that they saw someone like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia who was successful in doing that. And they know that if Republicans are able to both appeal to the, the Trump base and appeal to independence, then Democrats are finished. And so... Hence, the MAGA Republican sort of moniker that they really want to drive that. And I think we'll see uh, that sort of play out uh, in, in, the general, in the general elections as, they, as the campaigns pick up after Labor Day. Yeah, it's very interesting just because Republicans for years have um, used sort of socialism as a way of, defi- you know, sort of putting some Dems in a categorical box and how successful that has been for them that... It, it is interesting to see Democrats try to do the same by actually subsetting out 
through a definition, putting out the narrative, putting out the box, and then seeing what media and others will do with it. Yeah. I I, I guess just the last thing I'd say is just like I... Um, if, and I believe it is, if this really is a crisis moment for... Uh, our our country for our democracy uh, we have a responsibility yes to to stand up or fight for our democracy whatever terminology you want to use we also have a responsibility to do whatever we reasonably can in our power to help and reach out and try to include as many Americans as possible in that project. Yep. And that's what I'm looking to see. And I am concerned that the political incentives are actually toward putting more people in sort of the uh, the category of the untouchables or the, the category of the un-American, yeah, as I, opposed to as opposed to trying to isolate that group. I think your point, Melissa, about the fa- the way that the party system plays into this, um, the, the the fact that our politics essentially, at least the way it plays out, sort of uh, uh, sort of structurally in, in the system of our politics, is that we just have two sides. That makes it, you know, that sort of you're either with us or against us stuff is very corrosive to a functioning pluralistic democracy. And so, you know, would charge, you know, those of you listening and us, um, you know, let's not take our lead uh, from those who are constantly trying to put folks in boxes that they may not even belong in. Uh, let's try to call out the best in other people, in our fellow citizens. Yes, let's tell the truth. Let's name the stakes as we see them. But goodness, I want to make sure that there are on-ramps for folks uh, to sign up to the cause of democracy, uh, not roadblocks. And, uh, and, you know, I think there there were maybe a couple of unnecessary roadblocks uh, in President Biden's speech, but more broadly in our politics, I think I'm 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 seeing a, a bit of that. We need to be able to balance firm conviction about what's happening, an ability to truly name bad actors in our political system and talk about what they're doing, but but again, we need to. We need to be careful not to make these sort of sweeping uh, ca- uh, characterizations and categorizations of, of literally like millions and millions of Americans that we that we don't know personally, and that we can't de- determine everything about them by looking at a survey or an exit poll. Melissa, any closing thoughts? No, I think that's good. All right, folks, thank you for listening. As always, you can uh, check out our Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. I'll tell you, uh, one of the top five reads of the week is going to be this excellent, excellent, excellent essay from Mike Gerson in the Washington Post. Uh, Mike just sort of puts it all together uh, in a beautiful way. Uh, regarding uh, Christians, politics, the conversation I've been able to have with him and mutual friends over years. And, and I got to say, Mike's essay is is really, um, really one of the best crystallizations of what, what so many of us have been seeing. So that'll be in the top five. You'll get that if you sign up to reclaiminghope.substack.com. Uh, otherwise, uh, please leave a review uh, of the podcast. Share with your friends. We love doing this for you. Love being in conversation with you. Uh, until uh, until next week for where we are, 
And of course, we got the morning five uh, Monday through Thursday. Until then, this is where we are. Bye.